0: About while you listen first why are the lenses of my heart broken why are they broken and secondly what does it look like to see myself and to see jesus and to see others through the new lenses jesus gives us and older christians you can be thinking about the same questions This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus given to us by his chosen apostle, John the Evangelist, chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. And others said, No, but he is like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they again said to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind, How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Father, we come again this morning and we confess that even as your people, we need the enlightenment of your spirit to see your word once again this morning, to see it clearly, to see it as you have written it, and to see what it is that you intend for us in it. For our own faith, our own trust in your gospel this morning, That we would see how it is that you would apply your word this morning. We rely on you to send your spirit upon us to enlighten us in this way. Or else we confess we will not see it rightly. So do this for us in Christ's name this morning. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Ellen and I have recently come to the conclusion that we've both been in denial for quite a while, and it is about time to face up to reality. We both need glasses. I think my eyesight is worse than hers. I can drive and read well enough, but my vision seems to be getting a little bit more blurry every year. I walk into large objects more than I should. I get up early in the morning, find myself zipping up my jeans in the back. Well, All that to say that I think the year 2013 is probably going to be the year for some kind of new lenses for me. And whether you have glasses or contacts, the reality is that we already look at the world through a set of lenses. We didn't ask for them. We were born with them. And we weren't just born with a set of lenses on our eyeballs. We were born with a set of lenses on our souls, on our minds, and on our hearts. And part of what all of this means is that the idea of complete objectivity, of the ability to stand outside something and see it, in its totality is a human myth. Because to have complete objectivity means that you must be able to see a given situation. You must be able to see a given aspect of reality from every angle at once. And being a creature meant that that was never intended for us. Even in the beginning, when we were in a state of innocence. ...and moral perfection, our finiteness, our finitude... its a more fun word... ...meant that we were only ever going to be able to see something from one perspective... ...a limited, singular perspective. God, He doesn't have lenses. For Him, everything just is. There's no interpretation of reality for Him... Reality is simply there, simply known and understood in its completeness. And that's exactly what we lusted for in Genesis chapter 3. We didn't like being in the position of subjective hearers, subjective believers who had to trust and rely on the perspective of our all-seeing God that wasn't good enough for us. So when the serpent holds out the promise of becoming objective observers, knowing like God knows, people who could know for ourselves depend on our own knowledge, our own perspective, and capacity to reason our way to the truth. And when we believed the serpent and sinned against God, the exact opposite of everything the serpent promised is what happened. And our lenses went from being merely finite to now having the wire frames twisted and distorted and the glassware broken and cracked. And now we not only lack objectivity in every sense, we don't want to have anything to do with the only one who has it. And this is the situation that Jesus walks into In John chapter 9, different individuals and groups, all wearing cracked and broken lenses of various shapes and sizes. And while still using the theme of light in chapter 9 that's been used before in previous passages like chapter 1 and chapter 3 with Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus and chapter 8 that Aaron preached for us a couple weeks ago, John moves his focus from the light that Jesus is to the darkened lenses of fallen humanity and what it looks like when Jesus shines his eye-opening light upon someone. And all of the distorted lenses in this chapter are revealed and the different responses to the central character, Jesus, and then by extension, the man healed of his blindness. Now, we don't know a lot of historical, behind-the-scenes information about the man born blind, but honestly, we don't really need to. As a lot of us can probably see already, the blind man is all of us. All of us, with all of our stories that sound like the same story before salvation. The story of blindness and darkness. Augustine, the great theologian, says, This blind man is the human race, for his blindness had taken place in the first man through sin, from whom we all draw our origin, not only in respect of death, but also of unrighteousness. For if unbelief is is blindness and faith enlightenment, whom did Christ find a believer at his coming? Augustine asks. And of course, the answer is, no one. The man pictures for us the state that we're all born into. Not because of any choice we made, but because of the choices made for us by our parents in the garden. And our daily choices only confirm that we share in their blindness. But in the same way, this blind man's choices also play no part in his healing, in his salvation. Jesus doesn't ask the man if he wants to be healed. There's no transaction made. There's not even any faith confessed, at least up front at this point. Jesus doesn't offer any conditions that need to be met. He simply comes to a man born blind, without an invitation and without permission, and heals him. And in making clay with his hands mixed with the saliva of his mouth, which... In all of our clean little worlds has definitely less than an appealing ring to it. Jesus is doing it on purpose. He's, he's got a reason for doing it. He's borrowing imagery from the creation of man from the ground in Genesis chapter 2, where God comes along and he breathes into the clay that he's been working with, a life-giving soul, and he fashions him into a man made in his own image. And Jesus is borrowing from that imagery in Genesis 2 to demonstrate that he's now recreating this man. The formless and void blindness of this man is being recreated into a world of light with objects that are now understood in proper relationship to one another for the first time. Irenaeus, the second century church father, points out that according to verses 6 and 7, the man is anointed in his new creation and then is told to wash and be purified in a very excellent picture of baptism for us. And Indeed, from the very beginning, the church has not only seen baptism pictured in the the blind man's washing of the mud from his eyes, but liturgically, John 9 is read for centuries at the actual baptism ceremonies of new converts. In the early church, to be baptized... To come to faith in Jesus' claims to be who He is and to believe in His work on the cross and the resurrection is what it meant to be enlightened. To be baptized into Salome, which means sent, is to be baptized into the One who was sent. And to finally see that everything you thought you saw before all the mirages of success and pleasure and ultimate meaning and deliverance from suffering, those are all merely false vapors. It is seeing that only Jesus, the Son of the Father, made man who took the wrath of God from your sin on the cross and rose again, only he can bestow sight. To be baptized into the sent one was the beginning of a journey of seeing better and better, while still discovering more deeply embedded blindness in your life. Working to reject and replace that blindness with clear sight given by the Spirit. So from this point on in the story, we get a picture of this man's progressive journey of Christian enlightenment. Wearing his new lenses given to him by Jesus' gracious choice. Note the man's increased understanding of who Jesus is throughout the chapter. When his neighbors ask him who healed him in verse 11, he tells them it was the man named Jesus. By verse 17, he's willing to admit that Jesus must be a prophet. And when he's questioned by the Pharisees again in verse 33, he's willing to call Jesus a man of God. And by the end of the story... He agrees with Jesus' confession to be the Son of Man, the promised Messiah. And when we leave Him, the last thing we see Him doing is falling at Jesus' feet and worshiping Him, which is only something He'd do if He knew Jesus to be God. And the humility and faith of this man born blind, of course, as you would expect, is to be contrasted with the Jewish leadership whose refrain, whose outlook throughout the passage is, we know. Verse 24, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And of course, by saying that, what they're really saying is, we do know that wherever he does come from, it must not be all that important, or else we know it. The Pharisees are wearing the lenses of skepticism, rooted in fear of losing power and control. It's, note, note this real quick. It's not an unbelief rooted in a lack of evidence, even though they tell themselves and everybody else that. I mean... The notoriously blind man, I mean, the guy who's been blind all his life that everyone knows about, I mean, he's standing right in front of them, clearly able to see. And certainly, these men, these Pharisees had heard and seen Jesus before miracles before. Nevertheless, they hear the previously blind man's testimony twice, as well as that of his parents, and still tell themselves the evidence isn't there but neither is their unbelief rooted in sound theology, although they tell themselves that as well. Jesus' miracle on the Sabbath does not constitute a breaking of the Sabbath law, but rather it demonstrates what the Sabbath has always been about, pointing to the one who would eventually tear off our sin-colored lenses and reveal to us that in Him, Him alone do we find rest from dead works, pointing to the one who would reveal to us and give to us a new creation in which to work as we were intended to work. In other words, the viewpoint of the Jews or the Pharisees, and these terms are interchangeable in this passage, the viewpoint of the Pharisees is that we have no lenses. We see everything just as it is. Thank you very much. But the irony of the story is they plunge into deeper and deeper darkness until their blindness only leaves them in condemnation. In verse 41... At first, I mean, they seem ready to accept the fact of the healing. At least it seems so in verse 15. Some are offended that Jesus has broken the Sabbath law, but there's a a division among them, and some seem ready to maybe concede that Jesus may not be the sinner that others think he is. But upon hearing that the man who used to be blind thinks that Jesus is a prophet, all objectivity or pretend objectivity goes out the window at that point they begin to doubt the very fact of the miracle having taken place. And they seek to cast doubt on the man having been born blind in the first place as they interview his parents. And although they have all the trappings of a court of law and many witnesses and a judge's bench and all the pomp and circumstance of an inquiry dedicated to truth at any cost... All these formal trappings serve their own delusions a lot more than they actually do any concern for the truth. Their broken lenses, their twisted hearts have already predetermined the verdict. They seek to trap the man in his words like a twisted lawyer on a primetime TV drama by having him retell the story all over again. And even after the man defends Jesus' ministry with sound Old Testament theology, actually, the Pharisees only demonize him and his family so that they don't have to accept Jesus' origins. In the end, the Pharisees are judged by Jesus as being the most blind, having the most cracked and distorted lenses of all, and he leaves them with a chilling comment, that those who are forever blind to their own blindness, they're doomed to remain forever in the dark. And that's how the story ends. I recently read an article on a news website claiming that scientists believe that they're beginning to understand better some of the mechanics involved in human retina development Even in the womb, as as our retinas, our lenses are forming, evidently during time of development in the womb, exposure to light seems to be very important. And so the current theory is that no exposure to light in the womb could lead to very serious eye problems down the road, while a wide exposure to light during development aids later in retina development. So, for all the families who are expecting this morning, the new St. Peter's diaconate will be handing out complimentary flashlights as you leave the theater this morning, either to your right or your left. But what this means, of course, is that we don't see because we come to the light first. Because we choose the light over darkness after giving real weighty consideration to both. We see because the light first comes to us. And if you're here with us this morning and you are skeptical about who Jesus is, and you're skeptical as to the value of his death and his resurrection, let me tell you on behalf of all the Christians of history that no one has ever come to trust Jesus to save them from God's holy wrath for sin because they simply and objectively followed all of the evidence and they added it all up like a cash register. And ding! The evidence added up to faith. I know that some of us have written really unthoughtful books that make it sound like that's how it happens. With titles that sound something like evidence that demands a verdict. But it doesn't happen that way. You don't trust Jesus' claims to be the God of the universe by being smart enough to figure it out. You don't trust Jesus' death. To pay the penalty for your sins because it makes more objective sense than all the other religious systems out there. You don't place your hope for future life with God and His people by trusting in Jesus' resurrection from the dead because you did all of the research and you weighed all the objective value of eyewitness accounts of His resurrection and, and you weighed it against all the ancient skepticism. And you then said, yep, I've judged Jesus and i found him to be reasonable. And neither like the Pharisees, neither like the Pharisees, do you remain skeptical of Christianity or hold to some other system of belief because of objectivity either. You go where your heart wants to go. And you see what your heart wants to see. And before you can trust him for the first time, or simply grow further in the trust that you already have, you need him to give you a new heart. You need him to give you a new set of lenses first. And John chapter 9 calls you to trust him to do it. And this story also calls those of us who believe to continually leave those areas of blindness in us that look like the prideful, fearful, controlling, trust-ourselves-only Pharisees. And there's a lot of places in our lives where we would be tempted to see and act with these kinds of Pharisaical lenses. But let me point out one big issue that you all know is staring all of us in the face right now. The future of our church. And this goes for attenders and members and officers of the church and shepherds. This is Jesus' church. It's Jesus' church. And he sees and he knows what he's been doing and what he's doing now. And what he plans to do in our church and through our church. He does. Trust that His sight and His knowledge of what we need and His desires for us are better than yours. Trust that in His sovereign oversight, the one who doesn't wear any lenses at all has given us a process to follow that's brought us to this point and a process to follow that will take us forward. And He doesn't plan to abuse us with it. He plans to bless us with it. In the beginning of John 9 also helps us as we think about our current situation as a church family by helping us to leave the broken lenses of retribution theology that the disciples are wearing at the beginning of the story. Verses 1 and 2, the disciples are sure that they're in the presence of someone that is paying the penalty for some sin that he's committed, or the sin of his parents. And when you think about it, it's very arrogant, it's very assuming of them. It says that, We can know what ultimate purposes God is working out in our lives and in the lives of others by simply looking at how well we're doing or how well they're doing. We don't have to wonder or trust in the mystery of it all. What God is doing and who God approves of, it's all evident. You just have to follow the trail of blood and destruction or the trail of blessing, and it's all obvious. it's a theology that appeals to our desire for certainty, that appeals to people who are more afraid of mystery and what they can't understand than they are of trusting God who knows and who is in control of it all. We want to be able to connect the dots with very clearly defined lines. We like a cause and effect worldview. We like a cause and effect God with buttons and levers who at best can be controlled, and at worst can at least be predicted. And Jesus quickly dismisses his theology as no better than that of Job's friends, and he turns their attention to where it belongs in verse 3. He tells them, I'm not going to tell you the causes for this man's blindness. Instead, I'm going to show you the purpose for it. what he is doing in secret is never contradictory to what he's doing in the open. God's hidden will as to why he's ordained hardship for us at New St. Peter's during this time, it's never at odds with his revealed will. And whatever the myriad of reasons our God has had for decreeing such hardship for us, and I'm sure there's a myriad of them, we can know from His Word that at least some of them are, so that the works of God might be displayed. In the Lamberts, and in us, as New St. Peter's, the word we, at the beginning of verse 4, is a very important word. Jesus purposefully includes us with Him. In his kingdom work. And so the meaning of the pool of Salome takes on a double meaning in this light. It points to Jesus as having been sent by his father like we've already said. But Jesus is the sent one who keeps on sending. Which means that we now, like the blind man, are also the sent ones. And so knew St. Peter's. We must work the works of him who has sent us. While it is still day, while the light of the Spirit shines through his church, night is coming, his terrible judgment on the world, when no one will work anymore. And as long as we're in the world... We are to proclaim to one another and to those outside our church that the light of the world has taken our blindness and our darkness upon himself and he's left it buried in the darkness of his tomb and he's arisen to new life, giving us enlightenment. And our proclamation is to be accompanied with deeds of light. we are every day to be making the connection between His mission and our life work. John Calvin said of these verses, Christ still irradiates the world, but He works just as hard now through His ministry of people as He did through His ministry in the flesh. So come and believe that He sees your sin better than you. But come and... And see that He sees the sufficiency of His grace which washes away all sin and imparts righteousness better than you. Come and see that He sees what is best for our church and for our family and for you better than you. Trust Him for new lenses. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, you are the one who has the light, and you have sent your Son to be the light, to dispel our darkness, to show us our darkness, and to show us that in him do we have the way out of it. And You have not left us alone after bringing Your Son to Yourself, but You have given us the Spirit to continue to enlighten us, to continue to show the darkness in us that we run to, the blinders we run to, the poor lenses that we run to, and we thank You for that. We pray that in Your goodness to us and Your grace to us, that as a church and as individuals, You would be shining into our hearts, Your light as we go forward in this season. Point us to the truth of your gospel. Give us joy in it. Give us delight in it. Give us wisdom in it. Give us sight. We ask this in Christ's name and by the Spirit. Amen.